welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, and before we start today, I would ask my listeners to reflect on the history of the land they now sit upon. What traditional territories and treaties have governed this land? I record this podcast on the site of lands stolen from the Manahuac people. I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that also reside in Virginia and have made innumerable contributions to our region. I am grateful to work on this land. I acknowledge these facts in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. I am honored today to introduce two wonderful writers, artists, and collaborators, Che Glowry and Weshoyo Alvitre. Che Glowry is of Yurok, Maidu, and Achumawi native ancestry from Northern California. He is the author of the graphic novel Soldiers Unknown, the original Patriots, Northern California Indian Veterans of World War II, and the original Patriots, California Indian Veterans of the Korean War, both from Original Voices. He is the co-producer and director of multiple PBS documentaries about California indigenous people and cultures. Weshoyo Alvitre is an author and illustrator from the Tongva tribe of Southern California. She has recently been published as artist in Ghost River, The Fall and Rise of the Conestoga, a graphic novel from Red Planet Books. She also illustrated At the Mountain's Base, written by Tracy Sorrell, and was art director of the video game When Rivers Were Trails. Additionally, her work has been featured in Marvel's Indigenous Voices, as well as volumes 1 through 3 of Moonshot, 1 through 2 of Sovereign Traces, all of which are anthologies of Indigenous artists and authors telling stories of the past, present, and future. I am completely sincere when I say I admire both of you so much for what you do. I've been seeking out everything of Weshoyo's that I could for the last six months, ever since I came across Alice Six Killer. And while I'm relatively new to your work, Chag, I loved your graphic novel, Soldiers Unknown. And you've both created this beautiful book together about the women who weave their medicine and their strength together to support their community and my sisters. So I want to thank you both for that. Well, thanks for having us on here. Thank you. One thing that I noticed is that in both of your works, separately from each other, the image of weaving and particularly basket weaving is central in other things. So for example, the image of a woman holding a basket appears as a vision to Charlie in Soldiers Unknown. And I was just wondering if in the back of your mind, you were thinking, Chag, about basket weaving as an important part of tradition that you would want to write about in future at that point. Yes, uh, basket weaving is central to, I think, all of the indigenous cultures in California and around the country. Uh, it's a central part of who we are. It contains our disciplines, you know, stories, histories. Um, so like I wrote in uh, my description, I was always fascinated by, you know, the baskets themselves having a voice and having medicine that carries over into our human realm. And Weshoyo, what, what attracted you to the image of basket weaving? I, I have a lot I can say about the imagery of weaving in your other works, but specifically basket weaving, what was the immediate connection for you? Yeah, as, as Chuck said, you know, most tribes from California are, are known for their basket weaving. Um, I think it's one thing that kind of stands out with California tribes and even going up to, you know, just West Coast, um, you go up to Tillinget or you go into Oregon or even Southern areas. I, I think that's something that we are well known for. We don't have as colorful regalia. So oftentimes when people think of California native people, they think of, you know, earth tones, very kind of non-colorful. And yet we had some of the most intricate basketry work, I think, overall in Northern uh, North America. And also due to the fact that so many of our things were lost, we don't have regalia in museums oftentimes because they were made out of very fragile natural elements. And the baskets are the one thing along with our mortars and pestles and our stone tools and um, stone effigies that actually survived. 
years and years of genocide. So I think it's a representation of the fact that we're still here and we're still around. And it also is a representation of how advanced we were mathematically um, and also artistically in our, our day-to-day items. And it's so gorgeous to to look at these individual crafts pieces. You do include an image of one of the current basket weavers in the book. And I just wondered if there was a specific connection to that woman who was pictured on the back cover or not. Well, I think it was very awesome that the picture she's holding, you know, the unfinished basket, which really helps symbolize, you know, Bishoyo's awesome the uh, front piece that she created showing, you know, the elderly woman and the young woman holding the unfinished basket. Uh, That's a basket from my Yurok side. And the elder in the comic, she is of Yurok ancestry as well. But I put her image in the back uh, to honor her and also the Blue Lake Rancheria, uh, which is a Native nation that's been very supportive of my work in this comic. And uh, it's very, I wanted to say, you know, I'm very proud that Washoyo and I, our comic uh, is endorsed by the California Indian uh, Basket Weavers Association, which is a very influential group of uh, basket weavers and advocates. The acronym is SIBA. SIBA has been around for decades and they do a lot of good work. And so I would encourage any of your listeners you know, to look them up uh, mm-hmm. online and see what they're about, their mission. So the comic, to me, you know, I've thought about it for many, many years since I was a little boy, really, the concept of having baskets be the narrators, because they do, they contain our stories, they contain our histories and our spirits. And it's very awesome to, because I'm from Northern California, to connect with Washoyo, who's from the South, Mm -hmm. and that we collaborated together on this And I'm very, uh, I feel it's like such a blessing to have met her. You asked before, like, where did we meet? It was Indigenous Comic Con. And she tells that story better than I can. (laughs) Okay. All right. We'll show you. Let's hear it. (laughs) Yeah. um, If I remember correctly, I was at my table at Indigenous Comic Con. And I think Chad could maybe contacted me through Facebook or social media prior saying that he was going to be there. And, you know, he would love to introduce himself. And so, you know, he walked up one day and I was sitting there and he introduced himself and we started talking and he just mentioned how excited he was to meet somebody from California. And it's it's really ironic because the two times that I've been to Indigenous Comic Con, I've had very, very special interactions with people from California. In this instance, we ended up talking for, I think, almost an hour, an hour and a half. And we really started talking about just how underrepresented California Native people are. And I'm hired to do a lot of projects and a lot of the projects don't incorporate California Indigenous people because, for one, they're they're kind of erased in the history. Um, they're not your stereotypical Native person with, you know, the feather headdresses and the colorful powwow regalia. And so they kind of just go by the wayside. And yet there's such a beautiful culture there that is still thriving. Um, and Chad mentioned SIBA. I mean, there's there's women now that gather together, well, pre-COVID times, but they would gather every year and they're passing on um, basketry education to young kids, to each other and sharing things that would have been lost otherwise. So, um, you know, he, he mentioned that he wanted to do some projects in the future involving California natives. And I said, yeah, like hit me up. He uh, sent me a copy of his book as well. So it was just a really, really nice conversation, that first introduction. And I think he actually came back the, the next day, too, and we, we talked some more about this. But it was just really, you know, easygoing conversation. He was very easy to talk to. And we just shared this kind of unspoken, common way that we were raised and the way that we, we know how California natives are represented and how that's problematic. And, you know, we were both, I think, in our mind, maybe in the back of our head, thinking of how could we change this in the future with future projects? No, it's wonderful. And I'm actually having another California native on this show in a couple of weeks, Sammy Gensaw from the Yurok tribe. I don't know if you know him, Jag. It's, yeah, Sammy Gensaw. Yeah. Gen- Gensaw. Oh, Gensaw. I'm sorry. I never yeah. heard his last name. I've seen several documentaries with him, and I just wondered if you had worked with him. Oh, yeah. In fact, 
I'll tease and say I taught him how to fish. Oh, really? Oh, really? <laughs> no, that's no, that's no, that's not true. But tell him I said that. <laughs> I will yeah, tell him you said that. I will responding. tell him you said that. I'm finding out Chad's related to everybody. The more I. Yeah. You know, something that I, I really wanted to share, uh, because Washoyo is my hero. I mean, I went to Indigenous Comic Con because uh, I saw the, the program. And, you know, in my life as a California Native person, I always read comics ever since I was a little boy and always wanted to, you know, delve into comics as pop culture and as, as a way to tell stories, but also to educate and also to connect with other Native people. But I never, you know, I have a lot of friends and family who always you know, they read comics or they were encouraging, but no one actually in the industry. And so to actually meet Wishoyo, who is a, an established, published uh, artist and writer, it was like, wow, how empowering. And now that I've actually been able to collaborate with her on something that's been published and hopefully will work, you know, on other projects. Uh, but every time we talk, you know, I learned so much from her, you know, about her people you know, the Tongva people and culture. And, you know, for myself, even though I'm Native, you know, that's very empowering to learn about another culture and another a place, a history. And I did want to mention when uh, I thought of this comic, uh, when I initially thought of it and having the baskets tell the story, I was going to you know, write the entire script, write the entire comic. But Washoyo and I, through some of our conversations, what she shared caused me to really think and, and reflect. And so, and I never shared this with her yet, but I was looking through some of the baskets that I have. And uh, one of them in particular, I was holding it. And I was, when I was holding it, I thought, Oh, uh, Washoyo uh, is such a talented artist. And everything that we would ever talk about on the phone was always so impactful to me. I thought, you know, she has earned it and earned the place to write, uh, you know, about her own people. And so it was really neat. So it was all like in the middle of the process of constructing the story. Like I thought, no, she, she, she can, she needs to write. And so her writing is, I placed it in the center of the book. Yeah. yeah. Her writing to me, what she conveys is the heart of the story. And so I literally had a basket. Tell me that. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. <laughs> that's, that's really special. Now he, we, we've had some very um, interesting conversations and I've learned so much. I mean, it's back and forth. I've learned so much about his tribe up in Northern California. And, you know, you think coming from California, oh, everything's the same. We all have baskets. We all have this and that, but it, they're so different. And even, you know, village to village within tribes, it's so different. But he had such a different experience, too, with his relationship to baskets. His family, uh, he comes from a long line of basket weavers, and they they still have the ability to practice those things. And, you know, he was sort of approaching me with this story, and he was talking about it in such an excited, positive manner. I didn't want to be like the Debbie Downer, but at the same time, you know, our, our tribal history is so much different than that because... We don't have any reservation land in the city of Los Angeles or in Southern California. We're not federally recognized. There's multiple factions of Tongva, um, and only one is state recognized. So it's very broken apart. But in regards to just having our traditional, um, the ability to, to gather our plants, like Chad was telling me about um, how he would gather uh, basketry materials for his, I believe his aunts or his grandma. And it just it crushed me a little bit inside because I was thinking like, we don't even have any places except maybe like a museum native garden where we can go get our traditional junkus to do our baskets. And if we can find like junkus somewhere in, in nature where it's growing naturally, oftentimes the waterways are polluted down here so much. And, you know, it, it goes into just the, I think the, status of our, our tribe and our people right now. Um, you go through the environmentalism where the plants are being affected by the pollution. We don't have a land base. Um, and it goes up all the way up to us harvesting. You know, we put those plants in our mouth when we split our junkus. 
and it goes internally into us and can make us sick. So we really have to be careful where we go and gather and just be so aware of the relationship between our bodies and the land and the plants and everything else. So it's, it's almost like a, a bit of an opposite type of story because you know he has these beautiful landscapes up in Northern California, but thankfully, you know, they can go and they're their traditional homelands and they take care of their plants. Like they would relatives, like they go and visit, they know where these patches are to, to gather and they know that they haven't been sullied with, you know, major industrial pollution. Whereas in LA, it's, it's not that, <laughs> yeah, you know, not that situation, which is, I think just a reflection of where we are as a people and, to compare that to like 100, 200 years ago, you know, the state of the ecology here in Southern California versus now. So I was actually going to ask you about that line that you wrote, just like our identities dried and stored away. In those places, the old tongue knows dark earth, damp and rich, we are coming back. So you have a note of optimism in there. I do. Um, and that's <laughs> that's something that I've tried really hard to develop over the last, you know, five, 10 years while I've been working on these native projects. And honestly, when I first started, I was very bitter and very sarcastic and cynical in the way that I would put things out there because I grew up with my dad, you know, telling me these things and seeing for myself firsthand how greatly our, our tribe and our people have been impacted by land loss and by environmental desecration and just our inability to go about things the way we normally would. So, for me, even just being able to handle baskets, like I was, Chad sent me all these great pictures of his baskets from family members. He had, there's some in, I believe, museums up north, but they're respected and they're revered. Whereas, um, of course, I had to bring in my, my, my personal experience of like, I've never seen one of our baskets in person before. I've seen pictures in some digitized archives, but Tongva baskets they are one of the uh, most expensive baskets to buy on the black market or among basket collectors because they are so rare. And unfortunately, that bringing that whole collection side into things makes it so we oftentimes never get to see one of our baskets in person. So they're either in the hands of high-end collectors or they're stuck in mar museum archives, you know, away from our hands, but being... Uh, archival and protected through tissue and acid free paper. So it's, it, it was a real, um, like, how do I, how do I translate all these things, but do so in a positive way? And I think Chag was a, a real genius in the way that he proposed this story is it being written from the perspective of the baskets because it takes you out of it and it takes that, I think, the negativity and the cynicism out of it of you being a, a person that's maybe dealing with that trauma. And it really allows the the baskets to speak of like, it's like almost like a, an elder when, you know, they yeah. haven't seen family in a long time and they could care less whatever's going on in their life or whatever mood they're in. They're just so happy to see them because that's what's really important to be able to see these people that you're related to or um, that you're close with and just revel in that feeling. So I, I really tried to focus on that. And, you know, I could talk a lot about <laughs> the things I was thinking when I wrote it. And it's, it's really short. It's three pages. But I, I really tried to pack a lot of, you know, what I was feeling into those and then make a point to try to reflect the things that we've had to go through as a culture. No, and that and that definitely comes through. And I would say throughout the whole book, in spite of the fact that it's a relatively short book, both of your perspectives come through so clearly, like the the language is so specific that you use, Weshoyo, but Chag, your language is sort of a universal language when you are pulling together phrases like, our relationship is the beginning, our good medicine is in every strand. It's like sort of a coming together. You use the word gather a lot, actually, in your text, Chag. And I, I found that that was such a useful way to create the text, to have what Weshoyo creates sort of in the middle, and then this sort of coming together on both ends, where you have the experience of the actual earth at the core. And I, I love that. I love what you did with that. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, storytelling is a very awesome process. And even though the story is, is still relatively new. I mean, the comic is newly published, newly printed, uh, but to be able to take a step back and, and look at it and 
and look at how it's constructed. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, well, uh, I wrote that, you know, that line, the relationship is the beginning. Mm-hmm. To me, uh, I, growing up and, and being around California Native people, our basket weavers have always been our activists, have always been our teachers, our mentors, our guides, uh, our um, spiritual leaders, and they embody that relationship with our ancestral homelands in a very special, unique way. And I think the power of Washoyo's art, uh, well, first, you know, I, as a comic book reader, when I read comics, I, I tend, you know, I look at the art. The art is what, you know, draws me in. So when I wrote it, you know, I write, I try not to overwrite things. You know, the artist conveys, you know, the imagery, the story. And Washoyo does that with, you know, a lot of power. And uh, so I wanted to try and do that, too, with my writing, like not, not you know, overwrite and try to stick with, like you say, universal, broader themes. But that relationship piece, it really is a big part of who we are as California natives. And to gather, that's our strength as people, to gather and to network and to come together and that's also what the american government has always feared mm-hmm. and anytime we as native people gather so the basket weavers you know it's, it's a salute to them too you know that what they've accomplished and what they're going to accomplish you know and that's why you know washoyo mentioned it's three pages that she wrote but i you know i've read thousands of comics in my lifetime thousands and those three pages that she wrote to me are some of the most impactful that i've ever read as a reader and i'm you know i'm not biased i mean we collaborated it's our comics. <laughs> but, I, mean, it's, I did not tell you to say that <laughs> very powerful I, I really appreciate that. Um, and also, you know, giving me a platform to write to because I, I've always loved writing, but I've never really pushed that side of things. I've always kind of approached these jobs. I'm the artist and the writing thing is like some whole, I'm, I'm not that good with grammar. I'm not going to Oh, but Washoyo, your writing is so gorgeous. So I was actually going to bring up what you wrote in Sovereign Traces, volume two. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> You wrote the poem To Love Your Name, and this was another one that kind of connected to the theme of weaving to me. I was just going to read a stanza from it, but I recommend to our listeners that they find Sovereign Traces, Volume 2, actually Volume 1 as well. Weshoyo's lovely work appears in Volume 2 with both her writing and her illustrations. And she says, the weight of a mantra that took years to gain its magic, it's a long name, and it was placed upon me at birth like an heirloom robe, heavy and ingrained with the scent and ceremony of the ancestors who wove stories into its warp, who sewed it with spit on sinew from their mouths, prayers silent through their careful repetition of weave. I love that poem, okay, Washayo? So you can't stop writing. Don't stop writing. Please. <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep, keep doing it keep doing it I love your imagery that you are coming up with and you also mentioned this in this poem not in the section that I just quoted but you also talk a lot about languages in the poem as well and trying to keep that heritage of languages going which I think is another aspect of the tradition that's trying to be carried down through nature through basket weaving through the tongues that you speak. But I just wonder how, how does that express itself for you when you're looking at creating things? Yeah, well, all those things are so, so connected. And growing up, and especially that poem in particular, that poem was written for an anthology, and it was supposed to be sort of like, it revolved around love and intimacy. And I, I kind of asked Beth, because Beth, I think, edited it, and she was in charge of it all, Beth Lepense, and I've worked with her multiple times. If I could kind of go and like deal with the concept of love in, I guess, a, a non-stereotypical way. I wanted to make it personal. I only had a couple of pages. It was like limited. So, you know, I thought I would talk about my name because at the time I was looking into taking some language classes finally. Um, I had discovered that some language classes were available. And, you know, really 
trying to make those connections because I grew up and my dad taught me many, many words, but I was never able to build sentences with our language. And if anybody knows anything about the Gabrielino Tongva language, it's basically, it was deemed extinct at the turn of the century, although they were still native speakers alive. And they, they basically, you know, said for the last 100, 150 years that nobody has spoken it. And now it's coming out, you know, that through Harrington notes and whatnot, that there actually were speakers that were still alive. And there's recordings available on Wax Cylinder. And so over the last, you know, five, 10 years, I feel like I've picked up a lot of areas where, you know, my dad tried to go and find these things when he was learning about our people and trying to, you know, find these lost relics, language, the, the basketry and everything else. And so many doors were shut to him. At the time, you know, the only way to get a recording of a wax cylinder was through a museum archive up in Berkeley, which meant you'd have to pay them or be um, a professor to get up there. Um, and this was back in the like 70s, early 80s. And so he was never able to obtain those those songs and those recordings. Whereas now I'm literally almost overlapping him in age when he helped start Satwiwa Newbury Park and was most active in his work. And it's this weird, really weird place to be in because he he's dug out notes from the closet that I've never seen before. And they're like papers that I'm stumbling across now. And I can find full digitized access to these papers. And I'm also, you know, I contacted the Smithsonian archives and I managed to get our wax cylinder recordings just in the last year. So, you know, I don't talk about all these things, but I'm doing a lot of things kind of for myself and also to support the work that I'm doing. Back to the initial question. Sorry, this is all. <laughs> no, 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 no. And um, this is this is very valuable too because <laughs> just for just so you know, another person who's coming on the podcast soon that I've been sort of talking with and collaborating with to kind of flesh out some things is also David Harrison of the Living Tongues Institute for Endangered Languages. If you don't know their website, you should check it out. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. In re- yeah. So, I mean, the technology is catching up to us to where it, it can now support native people trying to reclaim these things. And yeah. universities and places of education are realizing that they've been gatekeepers to this material for the longest time and keeping it out of the hands of native people when it has so much more power and impact when it's in the hands of its own people. And exactly. that goes with things in museums. It goes with, you know, our baskets, everything else. In relationship to that, that poem and those, those words that you wrote, I was really processing, you know, what is it? What does my name mean? My name means two stars, my first name. Um, my dad, he named me after seeing two shooting stars up at Satwiwa, which was a joint solstice site for Shumash and Tongva um, for hundreds of years in the Santa Monica mountain range. I was born at home through a, a home birth. And it's, it's really weird because you can go back to Satwiwa and the little house that they have for the park service people um, was like where I was born and where I grew up. And it's all different now because they have funding and stuff. But <laughs> back then it was a little tiny house out in the middle of nowhere. So I was really just flashing back on that because I, I do go up there and I hike still. And um, I could go and walk that land blindfolded and tell you exactly where everything's at. Like I know where there's certain plants grow. I know where there's a little dip and like a rock outcropping it's just so familiar to me because i grew up out there and i was pretty i think isolated as a child because you know you're about a mile away from anybody's house and i didn't go to school until after i was five so it was basically just me and the land and my parents most of the time out there it really goes into who i am and i i grew up with people talking about my name and asking and mispronouncing it and you know all these things kids making fun of my name and it was just something where I always had to correct them. And I just repeat, repeat, repeat. And it always felt kind of heavy. Like my older sister has a name, Winona, but it, I feel it's a little bit more accepted and less weird than mine. And that she probably didn't have to deal with kind of the same harassment and stuff over her name. And now I feel like maybe I've grown into it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I never knew why I was named that. I, I always loved hearing the story from my dad, but, you know, applying it to real world situations when you're getting harassed over your name or you have teachers that just don't want to make the time of day to try to learn how to pronounce it. I had so many experiences growing up revolving around my name that um, it's almost like its own separate entity. And I really had to come to terms with embracing it and appreciating it. 
So that's a long story, and I'm really sorry that took so long. <laughs> no, no, but it's it's a wonderful story, and you know, and I find it so fascinating because names really are at the heart of who we are in very basic senses, but especially when you have that specific kind of heritage to nature as well. And I, I think that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Being named by the natural events of two stars converging at one moment and then the way that that then influenced you in terms of that poem. I think that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I'm appreciative that my dad used what little knowledge he had of our language at the time to name me in that manner. And my brothers all have names that are you know, from our tribe too, but I know that I think it was meaningful for him to be able to embrace his culture in that way. Like both my children, they don't have native names. They're mm. kind of more obscure names, but they're not from our tribe. And that's something that I also thought about, you know, when I have kids, like, am I going to carry that on through language? And how is it going to impact them or not impact them by either giving them a word that's from their own tongue but then of course they're they're mixed too so it's it's i don't know it's kind of a interesting thought process chad can i ask you what your relationship is to the languages that are part of your heritage uh, i appreciate hearing shoyo's the origin of her name and the challenges that go with having an indigenous name because that's myself you know chag is the Yurok name i always just gave up when i was in school like Oh, no, no teacher would ever pronounce it right. Or, um, so I can relate on that level. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, Should I have pronounced it Chag from the beginning? I apologize. It's okay. No, uh, no, no, no. It's not okay. It's not okay. Uh, well, I mean, I pick my battles. So time out. This is a battle I want to be on the right side of. Names are an integral part of culture, language, and identity, and they get to the soul of who we are, as Weshoyo pointed out in her beautiful poem. I made the choice not to edit out my many mispronunciations of Chaig's name, because I wanted to be able to acknowledge how often this mistake is made by people with the best intentions. I should have clarified pronunciation up front, because names are a way of paying respect to your guests. For this thoughtlessness, I apologize to Chig, and I apologize to you, my dear listener. <laughs> um. <laughs> I 100% get that. As a teacher, I understand that a lot of kids don't necessarily want to tell me I'm mispronouncing their name and so forth. And so, like, I always try to be sensitive as much as I can. And, ugh. Oh, it's so hard when you have a unique name trying to navigate that space of knowing when to fight and when not to. Sure. But, you know, going back to your question, you know, my brother teaches the Iraq language. Uh, I worked with uh, James Jensaw, who is one of Sammy's many cousins for the Soldiers Unknown. And James uh, teaches the Iraq language up at the Eureka High School up in uh, Humboldt County. You know, it's fortunate to be raised around people who knew the language, who know the language, and who speak it. I don't speak it. Uh, I know some words, but, you know, everything is so multi-textured when you ask questions about Indigenous people, uh, our language, our basketry, our history, where we were raised, where we go to school. You know, there's so many, there's no one answer. And I think, you know, as an Indigenous person, I often don't answer those questions. I don't think I have to. Um, in many ways. And so my way of, you know, conveying what I want to share is, you know, creating the books, creating the comics, and that's owning it, you know, owning that education process from my perspective. And uh, there are panels in, and images in the stories that convey things only to those people who are from those cultures. And I don't feel obligated to explain them. You know, if I want to share them, I will. Uh, I think as Indigenous people, we're often caught with having to, you know, educate about who we are. Uh, we're often caught with that concept that, you know, we have to always answer questions. And, you know, the publishing industry, you know, the comic book industry in and of itself, which has either ignored us as Native people or has severely marginalized us, as Native people, is something that I've wanted to confront 
for a very long time. I mean, publishing in and of itself is a racist construct. And so, you know, with my other books, all of my work, any story that I ever create in in the comic book realm is always based on my relationships with real Indigenous people and with real uh, issues and experiences that I've had. You know, they're not vanity projects, right? As Indigenous people, I don't think Wishoyo and I, you know, this, the, the My Sister's Story is not a vanity project. No. You know, it conveys deeply uh, about who we are and what our people have faced, what our hopes are for the future. And I always think like a positive and healthy future can only be reached if our own Indigenous artists convey it to us first. Mm-hmm. And that's what Wishleo, you know, is doing with her work. And I know, you know, that's why I say, like, she's my hero. Like, the basket weavers are my heroes. The, the Our native artists and language speakers are my heroes. My native veterans are my heroes. And I feel like it's an obligation and a duty and a responsibility to go in and try and knock down some of those barriers in publishing in and of itself in pop culture. Unfortunately, pop culture is what educates non-Native people the most yeah. about who we are. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very excited. You know, that's why I chose to go into comics because I've written books. I've directed PBS documentaries, you know, films. Uh, I've taught at every level in the academic system. But pop culture, one image that Washoyo creates can impact generations Mm -hmm. go way beyond anything else so i think it's it's an exciting obligation for me to try and create that space for other indigenous artists who i know are out there they got to be out there Mm -hmm. uh to see our work and then think oh you know i can do this you know i can you know here's here's an example that i can do or here's an example that i can go above and beyond I was always inspired by the fact, growing up, going through school, I never saw a color image of a living California Native person in any textbook, Mm -hmm. in any school book, in any film, none, nothing. But now we'll have it. So I'm excited and and happy that, that we have this kind of conversation now. But it's also, you know, and again, we'll salute Washoyo and hope that younger indigenous artists look at her portfolio of work she has great discipline mm-hmm. you have to produce the work and and do it on time and do it in a, a very positive spectacular manner like she does mm-hmm. we we can't just talk about it anymore and so i would say you know directly to native young people you know yes we've you know encountered so much and we have so many obstacles but it's all about opportunity too that look at it as opportunity and that you do have mentors, you do have people like her out there that you can look at and learn from. But above all, to me, Washoyo as an artist and my great-grandmother as a basket weaver have that same connection, dedication to discipline, mm-hmm. right? You create, you keep creating, you keep finding ways to create. And so... Yeah, I'm very happy. You know, I go on any podcast with Michelle and say, "Hey, look, this is this is this is our hero." Yeah, and I know yeah. you're too nice. You're too nice. Oh no, no. Well, there's just several things I wanted to like build off of what you're saying too. I mean, there's it has been for so many years, and why I deliberately didn't do native-based work for so long because there wasn't an outlet for it. You would basically go broke or go bankrupt trying to publish your own stuff, doing self-published work, and now it's tremendous because over the last, you know, I would say three to five years, major publishers have finally realized like we are severely lacking in representation. How do we fix that? Because in their eyes, they're seeing it as a hit financially. They're realizing that the public wants to read genuine things that are backed by either people that you know, know what they're talking about or can have lived in experiences. They're seeking that out. And in that comes opportunities for us as Native people to take on creative leadership roles, whether it's doing the artwork or doing 
the writing, I really hope to see more Native editors. And I'm seeing that, especially in, in publishing and children's books. Children's books are where I see it mostly rather than in comic books. Yeah. Yeah. The comic book world is far behind the children's book publishing world, to be honest with you. And I think comics have a ways to go because they have so much racist material that they've published and so many problematic characters that fit native tropes and stereotypes that they need to fix and thank you michael shayashe for yeah, pointing right. that out to everybody seriously um yeah his book was tremendous and he was one of the, the major reasons of why between him and lee francis the two of them i met about the same time and both of them kind of showed me that look there's potential that we can change this and this is how we can do it by owning our own publishing companies by owning our own comic book um, indigenous comic book conventions to provide safe spaces for people to work and to do this work and to feel supported by each other. It's it's also an issue though because I I get you know scripts and proposals from major publishers that are extremely problematic because they haven't done their research or they're having non-native people write it and it's just there's glaring holes. Or the other aspect of it is they want to you know name drop as a way of inclusion without going and consulting. And I'm actually um, dealing with this right now currently, which is ironic, this conversation. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm really having to pick and choose what projects I feel best represent people and my own people for the future and for kids that read this. Because it's important. I mean, that's that's more than half of it is doing it, I think, in a good way and in a way that's as positive with the, the repercussions after, after, after. You know, they, they talk about the seven generation thing, but... It's honestly true. I mean, you can make a decision. These books go into print. How are you going to feel about it in five, 10 years? If it's done properly, if it's written properly and from the heart, or if it's researched properly, or, you know, the, the proper consultation's gone through, or if it's just a name in a bucket and it's meaningless. It's, a, it's such an important point that Chegg had brought up in regards to that. Um, and, you know, we're, we're making great strides, but there's also a lot of work to be done. Marvel's Indigenous Voices that came out in November, I thought was a really great first step. Assuming it's a first step. I'm really hoping it's a first step and not just <laughs> like, this is what we're doing this one time. I honestly am not sure. I've heard that they have other projects that are supposed to stem off of that. But once again, it's getting seasoned writers that know how to respectfully handle yeah. the material in there and pairing them with artists. And I would honestly like to see, you know, some native representation in the editorial and in the upper. I would too. Because that right there is how it's built from the ground up. Just giving us jobs on the outside of the creative department is not fixing the internal problems. And, and I see that everywhere in the industry that it's mostly white women who are getting promoted over anyone else in terms of trying to say that they're doing the diversity thing. Mm -hmm. And it, that's an extremely problematic thing in terms of the hiring and the shakeups that are happening at DC right now. And I mean, who knows what's going to happen to the comic book industry after the pandemic at all. But I would really like to see them restructure things so that there is actual representation of diverse perspectives and points of view that they are trying to publish from mm -hmm. at the big two offices or even other independent publishers too. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's it's a hard thing because they've built their their industries from the ground up off of a certain type of look and feel. And to then turn around and realize that they need to be more inclusive of, you know, people of color, of indigenous people, black people, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, all of those those areas, they're realizing that they're severely lacking. And Unfortunately, a lot of the time it comes down to financial decisions because they need to see where their money's coming from, what is, you know, raking in the big bucks, and that's oftentimes what they cater to. So I think until, you know, our dollars sort of change or skew their business model, that's when it can really change, you know, the upper management in these, these corporations. But, you know, I'll do the flip side of that. I mean, we can look at an industry that's problematic and you know, focus our limited manpower, people power, and resources into trying to change that, or we can build our own mm -hmm. as Indigenous nations. Most definitely. We have Native nations that have the resources and the networks and the abilities to fund. We should have our own press. We should have our own editorial staff. 
publishing companies, uh, we can do that at this point. And, you know, that the My Sister's comic, I mean, I published it. It's, it was printed on a press owned by Native people. Uh, it was all Native produced. It's a story that would never see print at Marvel or DC Comics, right? Never mm-hmm. in a million. Uh, so... Yeah. And I, I commend you for doing that, too. It was, it was so beautiful to watch because he was going through a publisher and, then, you know, he, he kind of was sitting and he asked me one day, he said, you know, what would you think if I started my own publishing company? And I'd be like, I think that's a beautiful thing. I mean, honestly, like Lee Francis, that's what he did. He has Native Realities yeah. Press and yeah. it's been doing spectacularly. But it's sad because that's one of the only or it may be the only Native-based press here in the United States besides like there's there's Great Oak Press and I believe there's Payday and they publish some Indigenous, but they're not Indigenous owned, I don't think. Well, there are a couple of others that are ad hoc for one specific project, but mm-hmm. that's about it. Yeah. And I mean, just like tying it into like the Malky Museum here in Southern California and the, the Malky Press that was established, you know, back in, I think the 50s or 60s. And I, I may be incorrect there, but they've published so many important works that are so, so meaningful to the native and indigenous communities. And they are literally like the lifeblood of some languages and revitalization that Southern California natives have had. They're highly respected by, you know, the the non-native side of things too. So people working in anthropology and whatnot, but it goes to show that yes, it, it can be something that you can establish and it can be funded and it can be successful. And so it's wonderful to see like your publishing company check is, you know, <laughs> off the ground. And I'm, I'm just so excited to see people starting these and doing that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think, again, you know, we can do it in both ways. Keep plugging away at making inroads in the industry, you know, in comic, I'm talking about comics, but publishing in general. Because, you know, what do publishers have, really? Most importantly, they have money, mm-hmm. right? They have money that they can throw at ideas and projects, and as Native people, we've not often been able to, you know, introduce our projects or ideas. But we do. We have Native nations that could buy some of these biggest comic book companies at this point and own them. And so, you know, I will tend to often to want to talk to Native people, too, and say, you know, this is something that we should be doing. What's the reason why we have Native nations? Why do we even have tribal governments in and of itself? It's to perpetuate our culture and our language and our indigenous responsibilities. And you know, that's maybe a whole another conversation. But yeah. to me, it all, it all goes back to why are we doing, why are we creating these things in the first place? Mm-hmm. Again, it's not a vanity project for me. It's, you know, it's self-determination. We as Native people should own every step of the production, the editorial, the art, the writing, you know, we have talented people. We could, we can do it. And I think that we will. And, you know, and going back to, you know, Lee Francis, who was who very awesome. Look what he did. He created that safe space where Washoyo and I could meet. Mm-hmm. If there was no Indigenous Comic Con, how would I have met her? Mm-hmm. So Lee did the work. He, he created, he, he forged ahead. He didn't wait for Marvel or DC or Dark Horse Comics or IDW or Image because they're never going to do it, right? Or or they'll take small steps and then say, hey, look at us. We did it. Or they have the editorial that comes in and then it makes it problematic. I think, you know, by having like what Chad was saying, like from the ground up, from every avenue in the creation of a book, then you don't have to waste time and energy on, oh, that that doesn't translate properly or, Oh, we forgot to do this or we, we misrepresented that, you know, there's so much fixing that has to be done when you work with people who are non-native or non-native publishers. The one thing that I love about working with native people so far that I've worked with, with, and that has to go with Lee Francis has to go with Chig. There's this common ground where certain things you just don't have to talk about because they get it. Like they understand. Um, You don't have to explain well, I use this because, or I need to talk about this because, you know, they, they understand oftentimes why you're addressing certain topics or why you're using something in a certain way, or they're just completely accepting of, okay, this is the way that you want to do it in the best way that you feel like you could possibly put this out there. Like I said, having that safe space and that support system, that type of 
you know, indigenous to indigenous support in the work that you're creating, it allows you to experiment more. And I think it allows you to take more risks because you're not having to go and control all these things on a micro scale of like, oh, are they going to think this? Am I going to have to over explain? Like what we were talking about with language, we shouldn't have to explain everything. Um, And by working with other indigenous people, you don't have to explain all these tiny little things that you normally would. It allows more time and energy and to be devoted to the work. It doesn't burn you out as much. (laughs) Yeah. And that actually reminds me of something I wanted to say to you, Jake. I really admire you in Soldiers Unknown for keeping the language pure and unadulterated by putting in English in a lot of those pages because, okay, granted, I am a language nerd and I always like to see other languages kept kind of for their own sake so that people will be motivated to go out and find the language themselves if they want to meet it. But I also think when you divorce things from the language of their original context, it it makes everything all the more problematic to me, always. I'm not even from like a very specific location where I have a very specific connection to language, but I still feel that like in my bones. And I I think every writer should be doing that for stories that are authentic. Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I did that with the Iraq and the German language. I know, I saw I never, that. I never cared for, you know, tra- always translating. You know, people want to know what, what the words mean. There are ways to find out. And, yeah. And, but I also wanted to honor the discipline. You know, you want to know what the, what yeah. the German is, then... You know, you know, find out there's ways or the Iraq, there are ways. There are uh, authentic stories, right? Uh, it's a national conversation right now, right? People, mm-hmm. they want authenticity and original thinking, original creativity. And uh, I'm just always cautious because we don't have many, too many examples. We have some um, you know, positive examples for Native people owning our ability to share our stories and our images. Um, you know, if I was an editor or publisher at a big company, I mean, I would be, I'd probably get fired. (laughs) 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 And, you know, as indigenous people, that's a whole nother side of what we have to do. We always have to educate repeatedly, uh, and advocate repeatedly. And I, and I'm more to the point of, no, let's just build our own. Mm-hmm. And you know, go for that, and then, and then also, if we make mistakes, I own the mistakes too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. As the writer or publisher, and that's okay. That's yeah. part of the process too. There's no paternalism, right? I don't believe in that either. So yeah. And actually, on that note, I I wondered if this book was something that you sort of had in mind when you said in Soldiers Unknown that it is the truth in all indigenous communities that Native women are the absolute strength of the culture. Was My Sisters the project that helped you that helped you to pay that respect back to the women in your life? It, it is. I hope to do my best as a Native man to honor Native women in my family, in, in our cultures, in our community. I can't, as a man, explain that. I don't think that's my role. Like, oh, what, you know, how should women rightfully can explain that, right? I just wanted to, with that line, uh, honor that fact that I think a lot of Native men have become confused lately. There's a lot of machismo in Native communities. And if you really look, especially in California Indigenous cultures, the women have always been the decision makers, and our leaders in all ways. And men, you know, we have our roles and their respected roles and good roles. But I think because of all of the trauma and all of the disruption in the boarding schools, everything that our peoples have gone through, I think that by and large, a lot of men, you know, we, we lost that discipline. We lost those, those teachings of, you know, the gender roles. Mm-hmm. And so with that particular panel, I just wanted to convey like, but we also have good men in our community like that father yeah. who told us on that, you know, because I've experienced that. I've I've sat and observed and listened to men say those things and do their best, you know, to live that, not just say it, but live it. So that my sister's story 
you know, it was such a blessing to meet with Shoyo because it needed to be, she needed to be the one to convey the imagery, right? I can help, but I can help provide mm-hmm. the space, but it's not my role, right? And, but I, I wanted to honor Native women, uh, but there are Native men basket makers too. I wondered you know, about that. Yeah, there are. And even on SIBA, the board of directors, I think there's a couple of men on there. It's mostly Native women. But, you know, we have those roles, and that's in a whole other conversation we could have, too. Like, what are the roles, right, for Native women and Native men? But I think it's very cool that for our story, that for my sisters, that it's a Native woman and a Native man. You know, we collaborated and we created something that I feel is really positive and really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's, I mean, the gender dynamics, yeah, that could be a whole completely separate conversation, long one. <laughs> um, like, it, it's interesting, too, because a lot of California tribes are matrilineal, and I'm not sure chicks tribes are, but um, mine, the Tongva are often referred to as patrilineal, which is kind of a, it's it's not as common. Um, usually, it's, it's through the women's side. So, that's also kind of just an interesting dynamic to have in putting this book together and you know you can talk about the basketry too there are men that do basketry but it goes into colonialism too like oftentimes the the men were taken away from their families to go work as ranch hands and stuff after they the spanish came in and took over and then when the u.s took over from mexico um so they were made to do the hard labor or they were sent off to boarding schools but oftentimes it was for like industry whereas the women were left home and they had to figure out ways to make ends meet and basketry was utilitarian prior to colonialism and i mean they put pride in the work that they did of course they told stories through the designs and whatnot but at the turn of the century it really became a business for them to just survive and to feed their families and it's been incredible too i mean I've done some work for SIBA um, for their logos over the years. And then I took on this project with Chegg. And now I'm working on another sort of project involving basketry with the Field Museum. But the amount of stories that go into the baskets uh, talking about, you know, just what happened to them as a people. Like, I'm I'm just like, I keep getting filled up with all these stories and these stories. And it's, it's really great to talk about. It, it just goes to show how uh, connected I think the basketries are to our day-to-day life. And especially, you know, women going through the the changes from who they were prior to um, colonialism to how they survived during colonialism. Um, a lot of the baskets that you see in museums and in collectors' hands were sold by indigenous women who were basically making them to, you know, feed and take care of their families. But because they did that, those baskets, you know, were often to hands of who knows, you know, who knows who collected them or whatever else, but those children and grandchildren and great grandchildren from those women that made those baskets to sell are still alive. So it, it really goes and tells tales of resiliency. And, you know, over the past couple of weeks, I've been on a couple of zoom calls with people telling stories revolving around family baskets. And it's just been so moving to hear and really makes me want to do more work like this. Like I keep telling Chegg, I'm like, Okay, but then my sisters was like story one, but you could do a whole anthology of these stories. You know, I'll have so many women tell stories and how they are relative to the baskets in their family or in their tribe. There's so many just minute details and it's so connected to who we are as California indigenous people. So I really hope he takes that to heart. (laughs) I hope so too. (laughs) I think that would be wonderful. Yeah. And even just talking about the crafting of them and the mathematical accuracy required to be able to put these pieces together as well as sort of the meditation and prayer behind it as well. I just think everything about the process would be so fascinating. Yeah. And, and I, I appreciate, and I think, you know, basketry is so central to who we are in California Native communities that it is the connector and it should be the central piece to like any curriculum that's developed about who we are uh, because you can segue into everything else. Mm-hmm. And basketry can be the entry point to the discussion about Indigenous people really. And it's a subject where we still have, we still, we have loss, we have, you know, what we need to reclaim, but we have a lot of power in the story of basketry too, in the relationships around basketry. Uh, So definitely, I want to, you know, I hope to, you know, continue with that 
you know, that theme and, you know, try to create stories that are compelling, but then also can be used as the foundation, you know, for curriculum development and, you know, for education. And I want to also make mention that Chegg's wife, uh, Rebecca, she wrote an amazing curriculum guide that ties into the book. And I was just so blown away by after I got to read it when it was put together. It's it, it just it hits in the heart of how this could be utilized, not only with Native communities in education, but non-Native communities. And I think yeah. that's a huge thing. Um, if you can change the way kids see a basket in a museum on a shelf, that it's not yeah. just an object, but understand how it's made, understand the lives of the people that potentially made it, um, and really create that connection, then you're healing a lot of wounds that I think public education has instilled that they're just items of art you know they're just pretty mm-hmm. things that mm-hmm. cost lots of money that are highly collectible that belong in a museum case because that's not what they're about so yeah i just want to mention her and that curriculum guide because it's beautiful so. <laughs> how can i get my hands on that curriculum guide how can our listeners get their hands on it i'll, I'll send you the link okay um, cool the, the blue lake rancheria has it on their website so if they google search blue lake rancheria my sister's that mm-hmm. should bring bring it up, okay. uh, but I'll send you the direct link. Okay. And then I also just wanted to share, and I appreciate Michelle, you know, sharing about Rebecca's awesome work. But, you know, the concept of uh, a written language as the indicator for advanced, you know, thought or advanced civilization, you know, something that I've always had a lot of problems with, you know, basketry is one of the many, many ways that our Indigenous people convey our histories and our stories and what we are about. And it, it goes back to the relationship that I, you know, the very first couple of words, it's the, it's the relationship to the homeland. The basketry is the direct connector to the homeland and how you take care of it and how you're supposed to take care of it. And that's a lesson that this country needs big time, right? Oh, yeah. How do, how do we convey the responsibilities for the place where you were born and raised, where you were growing up, and the resources that you are privileged to have and to use and to take care of? And basketry is a way I, I think those uh, values can be taught if we do it the right way, like Rebecca you know, conveyed in her curriculum. And I, and I will share that I was one of very few non-native students in general to ever receive, I would say, a decent artistic curriculum. Uh, when I was living in Colorado, we studied the arts very in-depth. And I only lived in Colorado in fourth and fifth grade, but we studied in-depth the crafting of Kachina dolls and what the meaning behind the Kachina dolls was and exactly how important they were to native communities. And it's something that I've never seen replicated anywhere else in the country, as far as I'm aware, for non-natives in public schools. It's astonishing to me that this isn't an integral part of what we do as a country to honor these specific traditions within our own lands and so forth. I always find that interesting that there's so much yet to be done. And I love that your wife is taking on this work. Yeah, it needs to be changed from the inside out. And I I'm, I bet you anything that that education you had was based solely from a teacher or a couple of it teachers was. that put it together. It was. Um, I know I, it was. <laughs> I mean, like, what a beautiful thing it would be if we could flip the whole education system and apply like an arts-based perspective to learning history, to learning these things, because it's not just one one way to learn like a visual repeat this and then you're smart or know this fact and then you're smart like they often emphasize it's mm-hmm. applying that to real world items and real world how do you get from point a to point b how do you how do you get a you know a tree and how do you turn it into a piece of furniture that type of stuff we've lost that skill set in this country yeah. And it really goes down into the materialism and the capitalism this country is based on. If they can make more money producing something more cheaply, regardless on its, you know, environmental impact or land impact, people impact. Uh, Unfortunately, land, people, anything has gone on the wayside in favor of green money. So um, until we get away from the fact that green money controls everything, you know, we have to keep fighting this. 
Well, I'm glad you two are fighting it in the publishing industry and in comics with these beautiful creations that you are making to honor other people's beautiful creations. And I want to respect your time because we've already gone over time, but I, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and having this wonderful conversation. Are there any projects that you would like to give quick shout outs to or talk about? Uh, I would say just m maybe pick up a copy of my sister's. Um, that's the most recent piece. And then my piece before that would be the Ghost River graphic novel. And I would suggest you can go to ghostriver.org and it's available for free to read. And there's also teaching guides and educational tools alongside with that too. Jay? Yeah, well, I would encourage anyone to go on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and follow Shoyo because... Uh, She's going to keep creating good work. And I think, you know, she and I are going to do some future work together. I'm excited to do that. Um, yeah, I have a fair number of stories I'm going to hopefully put out this next year. And yeah, hopefully you can have us back in six months. I would months love to. A year. to. I would <laughs> love to. You guys have a standing invitation anytime you want to come on this podcast. I don't know if you actually read any of the things I sent you about the podcast, but my mission is pop culture meets social justice. So like literally anything you guys have to say automatically fits within that framework. And obviously you're both lovely, wonderful people. And I'm so glad to be able to talk with you today. So it was a nice you. chat. Thank you for having us on. <laughs> thank you very much. So I need to let you in on a little secret. You probably don't know this already, but this was our 50th episode, my friends! For the last eight months, I've been delighted to welcome guests from across the globe to this show and connect them with you, you gorgeous thing, you! Ride the Omnibus has given me a voice, a way to share with the world the ideas, the creators, and the conversations I'm passionate about. And I could not be more grateful to our listeners for coming along for this crazy and exciting ride. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey, and thank you to all our outstanding guests, starting with Chegg and Weshoyo, who both continue to teach me what it means to be an American. There's so much excitement just around the corner that I cannot wait to share with you. We'll be covering film festivals in depth, starting with Sundance next week. We'll be recording bilingual interviews and discussing great works with great authors, filmmakers, and artists. And now we have an amazing website, omnibusride.com, thanks to the fabulous Lisa Bell Roden. You can go there to dive deeper and learn more about our mission and our collaborators. And while you're there, you can support the content you love. Check us out and give us a shout through our connect page at omnibusride.com. We've made it to 50 now, and we can't wait to bring you 50 more. We hope you'll join us as we keep climbing up and up. Thank you so much for getting us where we are. It's, oh my gosh, 50. Oh my gosh.